0: What happened in the world of poetry in 2015?
1: My colleagues Greg Coles and Pearl Sagel will join me to talk about the year in poetry. Like there was all, I mean, this was also a year where there was a lot of conversation about poetry that left the poetry world. There was a lot of controversy, and we actually have an essay that talks a little bit about the way that poetry has been reckoning with race. Who are the very persistent gappers of Fripp? George Saunders will
0: be here to tell you about the one and only children's book he's written and what makes writing for kids so hard.
2: They didn't like the stories where somebody vanquished somebody, you know, where, where there was a bad person and the the hero killed him or something, or you know, or, or just one. But they liked it when there was a, a quiet victory followed by a kind of a redemption of the enemy a little bit, you know.
0: Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. And Greg Coles has bestseller news. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. This week, the book review looks at the year in poetry. And to talk about that year in poetry, two of my colleagues join us now, Greg Coles and Carl Siegel. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi Pamela. Pamela. So let's talk about what's in this issue, and then we'll talk a little bit about our favorite poems.
3: Sure. Well, of course, the year in poetry is uh, really a vast undertaking, and there was no way um, to do more than glance at it in this issue.
0: That's a very nice caveat lead there. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you loved
3: and, and so the goal with this issue was to um, kind of take a, a broad sampling so that we have some young poets, some more established poets, some people writing within very established forms. Some dead and, poets. <laughs> there are some dead poets uh, in this issue. We've got a couple of biographies of poets in the issue as well. It was really more to give a sense of what's out there right now. Take the temperature of the poetry world. Yeah.
1: Um, and also the critics. I think we have a really nice sampling of people writing in this issue from Maureen and McLean, Rourke, um, Srikanth Reddy. So it's a really nice, I think, sampling also of people that are doing very interesting criticism of yeah. their poetry. Um poetry.
3: And, and it was a nice opportunity for us to bring some people into the book review who had not written for us before. Yeah. Um, Natalie Diaz. Yeah. 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 Is she a poet? She is a poet. Yeah, yeah she's she's got a very fine book out called uh, "When My Brother Was an Aztec."
0: So even if, at a in a glancing, incomplete way, we're still talking about the year in poetry. What kind of year was it?
1: Like there was all. I mean, this was also a year where there was a lot of conversation about poetry that left the poetry world. There was a lot of controversy, and we actually have an essay that talks a little bit about the way that poetry has been reckoning with race, Mm -hmm. badly, mostly. (laughs) And that's by uh, Sonia Posmentier, who is a professor at NYU. And she talks about the controversy with Best American Poetry, in which a poem submitted under a Chinese name was revealed to be written by a white man, as well as some other sorts of controversies with people. There's one poet, Kenneth Goldsmith, who read uh, aloud an autopsy of Michael Brown as a sort of found poem and... uh, and another woman, Vanessa Place, who's been tweeting out uh, this year portions of... For years. For I'm years, sure. actually yeah. for years, but scandals sort of erupted this year. She's been tweeting out excerpts of, uh, or line by line, sorry, uh, Gone with the Wind. And so she b- sort of takes of, the temperature. Both of, of
3: if... those poets are white. Both of them are dealing with race and racial politics right. in their work. And so there's been a lot of question about how they're doing that, whether they should even be allowed to do that. I, I think there's no question they should be allowed to if they But how well it. are they it, doing uh, it yes, and why exactly, are they doing it? And I think exactly. that there's
1: been a lot of hiding behind, oh, this is conceptual poetry. And I think what this essay does in a very interesting ways looks at black conceptual poets and the way that they have looked at race.
3: Right. And so um, maybe even more than in kind of the. Rest of the literary world in general, uh, you ask about the year in poetry. It has been a year where poetry is really grappling with politics yeah. and, and uh, with questions of, of identity.
1: That's a very good point. There's a great review near by Maureen and McLean. Um, it's Anne Boyer's book, Garments Against Women. And it's, you know, people think of poetry as being so rarefied and apart from the rest of the world. But these are poems about poverty and illness and um, motherhood that feel very granular and gritty and of the moment. We're just trying to lift the holiday spirit here. (laughs) (laughs) Always. (laughs)
3: There's another review in here um, by Benjamin Hollander of the poet Ed Pavlik, uh, who teaches in Georgia. He is a mixed race poet who often in his work uh, deals with questions of racial politics uh, in America and in the world. Um, He's got some poems here set in Palestine and in Croatia, which is where his father's family comes from. Um, and so he talks a lot about um, kind of how our identity shifts depending on the context of the society that we're in. Mm-hmm. Ed Pavlik is working uh, very much in the prose poetry format that Anne Boyer is mm-hmm. also working mm-hmm. at, uh, in in "Garments Against Women," and that. Poets like Claudia Rankine, um, there, there's this real drive, almost like mini essays. They're, right. they're like lyrical essays mm-hmm. um, or prose poems yeah. um, that are uh, kind of dealing with some yeah. of these themes. And
1: interrogate the poem itself by doing so. Yeah. Right? They're constantly pushing and asking, is this a poem? Why isn't this a poem? Why could this also be a poem? And some of that en- energy and tension is really interesting. Yeah, The same kind of crossing of genre that's happening mm. in fiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: And it, exactly. And, it, and in fact, um, where you see it a lot in fiction, there are... Uh, writers who Started out as poets or who remain poets but are writing fiction. People yeah, like Ben, ben Lerner. Lerner yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, you go. But you both got Ben Lerner. Do we have another one? That one. Another poet. That's the right. Trend. Okay. Garth
3: Greenwald, too. <laughs> <laughs> is, 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 since you need another name.
0: <laughs> Our poetry columnist David Orr has his favorite books of poetry of the year, um, which is online. But do you each of you have a favorite book of poetry that you read
1: this year? I have a favorite book of poetry I reread this year. I'm constantly rereading this book. It's so good. Way to good. slip out of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a fraud. But no, I really did reread this. And I, I, I kept this in my purse. It just like took up residence. It's it's um, it's um a book called Our Andromeda by Brenda Shaughnessy, who is a friend. And um, it's a beautiful book about motherhood and sort of raising her child who has cerebral palsy and just ambition and wanting to be a writer. And it's just beautiful and sonorous. And yeah.
3: Um, for me, the the... Poets that I kind of constantly return to are the poets who really got me into reading poetry in the first place. Um, when I was like 13 years old, I stumbled across in my local library a copy of Robert Hass's book uh, *Praise*. I, I mm. think it was, mm. oh, no, *Field Guide*. His his very first book. It won the Yale Younger Poets that year. It, so, so there's this kind of openness to nature. It's it's almost you know nature poetry and epiphany poetry. Um, I, I think the The formal t- term for it might be uh, lyrical narrative. Uh, it's um, you know free verse appreciation and and close observation of the world. So Robert Hass is somebody that that I go back to a lot. Philip Levine, uh, working in in kind of the same vein. Uh, his book. What work is? It is a book that I reread. <laughs>
0: Both of you avoided saying a book that was published uh, this year, but that kind of brings me around to a roundup we did, um, asking people what their favorite poem is. Uh, because many of these poems uh, that people cited uh, were not necessarily new. Um, we asked a wide range of people, everyone from uh, Juno Diaz to Lena Dunham, Shonda Rhimes, John Green. Jeanette Winterson, John Waters, Stephen King, Gillian Flynn. I could go on and on and on. But uh, let's talk about a few of their choices.
1: One that I love is is John Waters uh, calling out Joyce Kilmer's trees as uh, (laughs) a... As a poem that, of course, uh, he would do something like that, that. The first poem that quote stirred him sexually. And, uh, <laughs> and I, uh, I he, have to acknowledge you too? You
3: too? On, on air. No, <laughs> I, I've been familiar with, with that poem for a long time. I had no idea it was a woman. That that, that no, that Joyce Kilmer yeah. is a man. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I, so, yeah, I yeah, thought yeah, Joyce Kilmer yeah. was a was a woman. Yeah. And, you um,
1: know. So he's great. He finds all sorts of, as John Waters would, all sorts of perverse undercurrents in this poem. Um,
3: I, I was pleased to see Lena Dunham single out Robert Lowell. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there, there's a whole category of, read, of course, Auden and Eliot and Philip Larkin, Elizabeth Bishop, um, James Merrill, uh, and, and Robert Lowell is part of that category of writers who, who have like ferocious control and dexterity, mm-hmm. um, but who could still strike a conversational tone right. even within yeah. the tight limits yeah. of the form. The playfulness. Uh, the, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. And more than that, then, uh, with, within all of that, they had something to say. And yeah. so Lena Dunham um, singles out Man and Wife by Robert Lowell. Yeah.
1: I mean, it is really striking about how, like, so many of these writers chose poems that really dovetail with their themes. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, Julian Barnes chose this poem ch- by one of my favorite poets, A.E. Hausman. Um, the poem is The Laws of God. It's sort of this, like, really disciplined, despairing poem that sort of has in its penultimate line, If Keep We Can, which is such a Barnesian theme, right? If you can endure, how to endure, one must endure.
3: Similarly, Ta-Nehisi Coates um, singles out Robert Hayden and uh, his long poem, Middle Passage, which is looking back at America's kind of founding as as a colony built on slavery. That's the original sin of of America, and it very much ties into Ta-Nehisi Coates' themes in his work.
0: Mm -hmm. Anyone just completely surprise you with their choice?
3: You mentioned John Green earlier, and um, I I was a little bit surprised. Uh, he, He writes, you know, young adult novels and Mo Willems, who writes picture books, singled out Dr. Seuss, which you might expect. But John Green singled out John Keats. And uh the poem that he picked is in some ways not even a, a poem at all. It's a single tossaway line mm-hmm. that Keats wrote in his Last Will and Testament. Um the, the final item of his Last Will and Testament begins my chest of books divide among my friends, and it's this um, perfect iambic right. pentameter. It's you know, it's it is essentially a poem. Mm-hmm. Um, John Green says that uh, he points out how the middle word of that short line is "divide." It's the word that divides that line of poetry. Yeah. He says it. it he keeps circling back mm. to it um, and thinking about mortality and uh, how we deal with those that we love and the things that we love.
0: But, you know, those are John Green's
1: themes. Yeah. Th- that's
3: it's, true. It's, true. it's, it's not, true. not a surprise at all when yeah. you think about it.
1: I mean, I, nobody surprised me in that way, but I was grateful for an introduction to so many poets I, I hadn't heard of. Um, Juno Diaz recommended uh, a poet named Aracelus Guirme, whose poem is Kingdom Animalia, that he said brought him a lot of comfort after his sister died. Uh, Elena Ferrante recommended an Italian poet named Emilia Rosselli. So there are a whole bunch of names um, and, and you know, snippets of poetry that were just felt fresh and new and from other worlds. Mm. All right. And now I'm going to do this to you. What's <laughs> your favorite poem, Paul? Oh, my God. Well, keeping with my general theme, despair, apparently. It's um, Carrying Comfort by Gerard Manley Hopkins, which is an intensely sad dramatic kind of histrionic poem it's like sort of culmination of the dark night of the soul or so i think i actually it's one of those poems that the sound of it is so beautiful and i can still remember the first time i heard it and just not knowing that language could do that it's just this wonderful lapping energy and it just sounds like an incantation and at the end of the poem you look around and you're like something has to have happened so what it's about i'm still foggy but (laughs) it's in my bones it's so good
3: I'm Greg. F- favorites are hard. And, you know, um, we asked all these people to come up with favorites mm. um, very cavalierly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you asked us to think about our favorites and I suddenly freaked out. Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> now you know what we do to people. <laughs> I mean, the first poem that that really grabbed me as a as a young adult, as a high school student, was um, Philip Levine's "Animals Are Passing from Our Lives," which is uh, written from the perspective of a pig on its way to slaughter. And of course, it's really a poem about death and the machinery of death and how we conduct ourselves uh, in the face of the inevitable. This is a, a pig with great dignity, uh, refusing to to. Uh, be afraid of what he knows is coming but you asked for favorites and I mean they they can be very personal and idiosyncratic I have to confess to a soft spot for an obscure poem by um, a guy named Charlie Smith he's he's like Dennis Johnson he's a poet and a fiction writer like Ben Lerner Mm. (laughs) a poet and a fiction writer he he wrote a poem called now I smack my head which I saw in a small literary journal when I was uh, maybe 19 years old And uh, it was later collected in his book, Indistinguishable from the Darkness. Um, And it's the kind of poem I was talking about before, a poem of epiphany, um, close observation. It's about not taking yourself too seriously. Uh, It's got a cameo by Laurel and Hardy in it. It's got rain dripping from ginkgo trees. When I... Was an insufferable college student. Uh, I had it as the outgoing message on my phone for no, a you month didn't. or two. Yes. No. <laughs> to to, no. the, most, to no. the mostly tolerant bewilderment of my callers, I did, yes.
0: <laughs> All right. And now to the bewilderment of our listeners here <laughs> Craig, Paul. thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. <laughs> Alexandra Alter joins us now to talk about the year in literary news. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So this is our year-end issue. gives us a chance to talk about what happened in the literary world in 2015. I feel like I'm going to know what your number one story is. Why don't you take a stab at it? Um, was it one that took up three months of our podcasts? Uh yes. An unknown author, yes, with her sophomore effort, go at a Watchman.
4: Yeah, I mean, of all the big surprises in publishing this year, and there were so many of them, I mean, from ebook sales falling to independent stores doing well to audiobooks blowing up, people buying coloring books. I mean, it was a crazy year. I think probably the biggest bombshell was the second novel by Harper Lee. Published more than fifty years after *To Kill a Mockingbird*, and nobody expected that. Um, we didn't expect a previously unpublished book by Dr. Seuss to turn up either, so that was another big
0: surprise. This was a surprising year. Now that you list all those things, what was? Yeah, that? I mean,
4: really, the, apart from Harper Lee, I think coloring books is my number one kind of shocking trend because it really seemed like such a fad in the early spring when it started with. Joanna Basford, who's this queen of coloring books, um, she was the first author to break out in this exploding category, and now her books have sold more than, I think, more than 16 million copies in, all over the world, and the trend has not gone away. There's more than 150 adult coloring books on the market now, according to Publishers Weekly. We're seeing adaptations of books by, you know, J.K. Rowling and George R.R. R. Martin and Diana Gabaldon and Barnes & Noble has its own coloring book section near the cash registers. It's just become this kind of staple category now for publishers.
0: Let's try to figure out what's going on because I have a couple of theories and I want to hear yours. I I think that it's a kind of shop craft for soul craft, kind of very accessible version of that, that people want to get back to an easy, tangible manual activity.
4: I think that's absolutely right. I think it's the tactile nature of it. It's not a screen. You know, it's it's very kind of meditative. And um, it's also approachable. What Joanna Bassford told me when I interviewed her, she said she thought a lot of people were intimidated by drawing something of their own, kind of creating the, the image. But when it came to filling in, you know, somebody else's image, that seemed absolutely doable and relaxing. So I think I think that could be part of it. It's still crazy that it's become such a popular category.
0: It's like Sudoku or Ken Ken, but not as hard. Exactly,
4: exactly. And in terms of other kind of surprising formats, we're still seeing this major growth in digital audio, which is, which is exciting. I think publishers are really enthusiastic about it. They're putting out more and more audiobooks to kind of feed the demand, but uh, digital audio sales were up almost 40%. In the first seven months of this year, meanwhile, ebook sales have tapered off, and nobody was expecting that either. They fell eleven percent in the first seven months of two thousand and fifteen compared to the previous year so that 's been surprising and I think publishers you know are a little wary of that um, they don 't necessarily want ebook sales to fall any further because in some cases they're they 're not making up you know the revenue in print and they 're losing the ebook sales possibly to Um, as as readers turn to cheaper self-published books. That's kind of been a surprising shift that nobody was expecting. Right. And finally, I thought it was kind of interesting this year, um, and we talked about this, I think, on another podcast, that there was not really a breakout literary novel. You know, after previous years where we had The Goldfinch or Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See, there wasn't one must-read, most discussed book of the year. And I was curious about why that was and I was looking at the bestseller list and I wondered if maybe it's because people are still buying (laughs) All the Light We Cannot See. So I contacted um, Scribner, the publisher, and it turns out that's the case. They shipped 2.3 million copies in 2015 compared to, you know, the year it came out, 2014. They shipped a million copies, so you can see that more and more people are still buying that book.
0: What was the most fun story for you to report?
4: I loved learning about Dr. Seuss. I I wrote about uh, the newly discovered book and how they put it together, and um, Maria Russo wrote a beautiful essay looking at his legacy and why his books are so popular still. What I loved about it was um, because they had to kind of reconstruct his creative process to make this book, which was really just ink drawings and some verses, into a publishable book, um, I learned a lot about how he worked, and I, I never realized... The rhymes are so sort of silly and fun and easy, but really they were painstakingly crafted. Same with the colors. He was obsessive about which colors he picked. He just did so many drafts over and over. And so his editor went through a similar process, um, trying to replicate what he might have done to make this book come together. So that was probably the most, one of the most satisfying stories that I worked on.
0: And since we're talking about mosts and bests and those kind of things, what was your favorite? What was the best thing you read this year?
4: In terms of my the books that I tore through, and for me, that's a pretty good barometer of how engaged I am. I loved um, Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. Seeing a marriage from two perspectives is not an, a brand new idea in fiction, but the execution I thought was beautiful. It was such a surprising turn that the book took when you, when you went to the wife's perspective and realized how different everything looked. Yes. Um, and the language is beautiful, and I love just kind of the overlaying of the sense of mythology that she brought to it and i also love purity by jonathan franzen i thought it really got at some of some of the issues that we're grappling with as a culture as a society with how how much of our information we're willing to give over for convenience for security all those things that are still coming up in the news um he got at with his with his kind of sweeping novel about a journalist and a hacker and, and their kind of tortured relationship.
0: Those are both two very uh, long books I would just like to point out, um, which uh, probably explains a lot about Alexandra's success in her position, and is that she is a super reader, a super fast reader. How many books do you have to read generally for your reporting here?
4: I, I tend to read two books a week usually. Um, I do read quickly, and um, and when the books are gripping, it really helps. Of course, you know, Dr. Seuss didn't take too long, but it was equally engaging.
0: (laughs) That week you read three books. That's right. Okay, thanks Alexandra.
4: (laughs) Thanks for having me.
0: George Saunders joins us now. He is the author for Adults, most recently of Congratulations, by the way, and the story collection, 10th of December, and is also here to celebrate the 15th anniversary reissue of a children's book, The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp. He joins me along with Maria Russo, our children's book editor, and we are going to talk about kids' books. So welcome, George. Nice to be here. And Maria. Hi, Pamela. All right. So let's just talk about this book, The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp, illustrated by Lane Smith. This was originally published in 2000. Um, how did this book come about?
2: Well, when our kids were little, I, I'm like an obsessive rewriter, like almost a little clinically deranged. And uh, so when the kids were little, I would just go in sometimes and just try to improvise the story, which for me was kind of unusual. So maybe, you know, for a three or four month period, I would just go in and they'd say, you know, so I made up this uh, little girl character and we just kind of. Riff to them, and the thing that was great about it was having you know an audience that was close and also beloved to you. Is you could tell when you were hitting it, you know. Sometimes you were boring them, sometimes you weren't. So two daughters, and I could just notice that whenever I would tell a story, where they didn't like the stories where somebody vanquished somebody, you know, where where there was a bad person and the the hero killed them or something, or you know, or, or just won. But they liked it when there was a. A quiet victory followed by a kind of a redemption of the enemy a little bit, you know? And I mean, I really noticed this in their reactions. Uh, if I ended the story too, you know, kind of male, uh, right. th- they <laughs> too would Too happily of, yeah. and triumphantly. <laughs> right. They they would kind of, yeah, but what, what else, you know? It became this pattern of, of stories where usually it was a little girl and she had a kind of a crazy family and a nutty community that were all conspiring to misunderstand her. And she kind of very patiently abided with it. And at some moment, you know, threw a switch and turned things around. So out of that whole, you know, period, there was one that I thought had kind of the structure to maybe that I could go take off and obsess about. So this is the one. So I took it off and spent another four or five months kind of refining it.
0: All right. What's the story about?
2: Basically, there's a there's a little really poor town on a cliff and uh, three houses worth. And their, their economy is goat based. But every day, three or four times, these little creatures come out and just overrun the, the city, thousands of them. And they kind of shut down the goat uh, business. So the tradition has evolved that these kids will go out every day. They're part of their responsibility as good kids is to clear the, the yards and throw the things back into the ocean, and the whole cycle starts again. Uh, and that works for them, kind of. And then one day, for complicated reasons that people have to buy the book to find out, the, they all come to this one girl's yard. So suddenly the neighbors are completely free of this burden. For me, it's kind of about their reaction to that, mm-hmm. you know, the way that they make the mistake that we probably all make, which is to think good fortune. For me, equals I'm virtuous, and uh, so kind of you know hilarity ensues after that.
0: Did it develop like along with the reaction of your children? Like you know, you said cows, and they sort of frowned, and then you moved to goats. Or I, how I did don't you? remember.
2: I think I think it was probably it, pretty trial and error. You know, they they would allow me to revise on the spot a little bit if something got off into the rough. <laughs> it's
0: such an interesting way to end up writing fiction in yeah. a way. It's like you're workshopping it with your audience well, as that's you right. go and, along.
2: And I, that's my big thing is you you know you're really in the communication business. So when you're writing and revising, you are in an intimate relationship with the reader. And part of that deal is that I'm going to revise so that I indicate that I have a lot of respect for you. You know, I'm going to cut out the dumb stuff and the repetitious stuff and the lazy stuff. And uh, in that way, you kind of sit up and go, oh, he, you know, he sees me over here. So it was it was great to have that kind of enacted right there, you know, in front of you.
0: How did you end up getting Lane Smith? You've called him your favorite children's book illustrator ever.
2: Yeah, I had finished the book. And uh, sent it to Random House, and then they said, "Well, who do you want to send it to?" And I said, "Really, I just want to send it to Lane Smith." And they they did. And over the weekend, he said yes. So that was—I always say it's kind of like you—you're getting married in your backyard, and the Pope agrees to do the ceremony. You know, so so, we, so he agreed to do it, and then um, we just you know took off from there.
0: That's not always how it works, Maria, right? I mean, you don't often get to choose your illustrator.
2: Yeah, it seems like it's pretty rare these days. When you do a book, it's great to do the book. And sometimes if you're lucky, there's some peripheral things that happen. And with this experience, um, I learned a really important lesson about just art. Because I went down to Lane's studio, maybe a week later, and the walls were just an explosion of beautiful, incredible paintings of this world. And not just in one mode, you know, two or three different takes on it. And as somebody who tends to be a little fussy, you know, um, uh, and I sometimes, if I am working hard, I, my barometer goes into the fear mode rather than joy as a writer. And Lane was just like explosively talented, you know, so very inspiring to see that.
0: Did you then collaborate all at all or? or change the story as you saw his illustrations coming in?
2: You know, we did, we tried not to do too much redundant description. You know, so in other words, having those incredible illustrations and also his, his wife, Molly Leach, is a designer. She's just brilliant. So uh, I became familiar with the concept of page turns, which I right. didn't know.
5: A big thing in picture books. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, so is that something that you guys talk about all the time in the, in the aesthetics of that? Um,
5: that? You know, if, if it works well, you take it for granted and don't even notice it. So you don't have to talk about it. Right. <laughs> you right. kind of talk about it when it doesn't work. But no, these, these obviously work really well you want the story to move visually too so you save something you know at the end of each page you're saving the next bit of the story visually as well as uh, narratively right
2: so I learned a lot about that from them and uh, so that was really really wonderful but they're they're just it was literally like uh, you know just getting the best people in the world to honor your work in a way. So it was a great, great experience.
0: Did working on this story, which you originally, uh, originally came out in 2000, did that experience and that collaboration in any way inform your approach to writing for adults?
2: I think if you'd asked me in 2000, I'd have said something like, well, Uh, adult fiction is kind of cautionary, you know, it's supposed to, uh, especially in a nice culture like ours an affluent culture, it's supposed to remind us that things aren't good for everybody, just because they're good for you. Uh, Just because things are good for you, they won't be good for you permanently, that kind of effect. And I would have said, but for kids, what we're doing is something different. We're kind of saying, we're reminding them that even though life will be tough, they have resources. So kind of a happy ending mentality. So I kind of gave myself uh, maybe a, a a past to do a happy ending which at that time for me was sort of uh, unusual and but in having done it it was like I sort of trained my artistic body to go oh yeah you can do that and then I started to think well actually that first definition of fiction was a little modest uh, fiction actually can do both at once it can remind us that things are hard and remind us that we have resources uh, so in the best like chekhov and tolstoy that's what it's doing so i think this kind of it's almost like if you had a a trainer forced you to do a certain exercise and then you became aware of a certain muscle group. Suddenly then that that's yours to use in the future. So I think especially with 10th of December, I could feel this book kind of somehow working in the back of my mind a little bit.
0: Do you find that people underestimate children's literature, underestimate the difficulty of writing
2: it? Oh, I sure did. I thought, you know, I thought oh, it's just shorter, you know, and uh, it's so I, I had never even tried another one after this because they're the classics of the form are such a beautiful, you know, combination of of, of a Little bit of language. Like I always think of this a good kid's book would be John was unusual. And then the next picture is John with a head six times the size of a normal head. But if it was if it was John was unusual, he had a big head in the picture, but somehow that's less. You right, know? So right. those kind of right. things enter into the cinematic in a way that I'm a little a little
0: I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why people say that the greats, the real greats um, of children's literature, are the author illustrators because they're able to do that in their head. Yes, you know, it's very hard to write that way, and then to know how an illustrator is going to interpret. I think that's
2: right. Yeah, but it also struck me how how much it's like movies. This whole thing.
5: Yeah. I was going to say, speaking of the uh, great author illustrators, you mentioned Dr. Seuss in your when you your list of your favorite children's books, and there's something so Seussian about this book. Um, and in the the vision of the world and the way that children can have power in that world and can actually teach the adults. Mm. But the language is really all your own. It seems like you weren't as you were writing it. A lot of people who are influenced by Seuss end up kind of sounding like him, but I feel like in this book you don't sound that much like him. It's more kind of on a deep level. Yeah,
2: he, he's a bit like the Hemingway of kids' lit. You know, right. if, you, if, you the get your, if you touch that, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I there's
5: to... a Loraxian quality even to this.
2: To the cover. To the yeah. cover. Yeah, you know, it's funny actually. Doctor Seuss saved my writing life because when I was uh, as an engineer, I was writing this real Hemingway-esque stuff, and uh, was reading a lot of kids' books to our kids, especially The Sneetches. That was one I really, really just one of those kids' books that. You know, if you're a parent, you know that there's a set of kids' books that you hate because they're so obnoxious, and, but somehow your kids like them and you have to read them. Oh, yes. Well, the Sneech was the opposite. The snitch was like, you guys want to read the right. <laughs> totally. oh, do Right. I'll do all the voices and I'll put on the costumes. And, uh, <laughs> but, but re- you know, doing a lot of that reading. And then one day I was in a conference call at my job. I was a, a tech writer. For some reason, out of the corner of my mind, I just started writing these little Susian which are so addictive to try, you know. And they were really, they're a little pornographic, actually, you know, a little, little funny and, you know, scatological. But they actually had a little bit of zing to them. And uh, I just finished this big book, this 700 page book about a novel about this Mexican wedding that was just death. Between covers, it was so boring, <laughs> and uh, but I brought this little pamphlet home and put it on the table, and I heard my wife laughing from the next room, which uh, she hadn't reacted. You know, no one had reacted with any pleasure to my work, in a long time. <laughs> and uh, there was something in being free to use that Susie voice, and that in turn reminded me that you know, dummy, it's about fun. You're supposed to have fun. That's that's right. all it is. So that was a real. I,
0: I often take that parenting challenge of speaking to my children and that Susie and cadences. Cadences. I think you yes. better
2: stop it. Right. You better stop it now. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maria referred to a list. That you did of your favorite children's books. This was back in two thousand and one for the excellent uh, blog dinner, a love story, which is obviously not just about food um, because it's run by the very literary Jenny Rosenstrack and, uh, in part, by her husband Andy Ward. What are some of the books that you called out as your favorites on
2: that list? Well, one of the ones that I, that I found with our kids was um, this Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It was uh, it came in a cassette at that time and it was narrated by Glenn Close and it was the scariest single. Reading. Our kids finally finally wouldn't let me do it anymore because it was too (laughs) scary. You get scared of everything, you know, of of Glenn Close. And, you know, Um, the other one that I I used to love is this one called Joyful Noise by um, Paul Fleischman. And it's just basically sort of a script for the parent and the child to do home. Uh, Poetry, yeah. It was like sort of co-read a poem together, and it really was sweet because it's not. It's sort of not easy. It, it takes a little bit of coordination, and you're both focusing on the task. And it was really rich to do that.
0: Yeah. One of the things I noticed, um, maybe a common, a few common threads in the books that you called out. Um, a lot of fables, a lot of things that sort of felt like folk tales handed down through the ages. Yeah. The caps for sale, millions, millions of, of cats. cats. Yeah, yeah um, And then also moral stories in a way. And I'm wondering if that if you're drawn to that kind of children's literature? Oh,
2: yeah, very much. I I think actually even adult literature, I like it simple and I like it kind of uh, mythic a little bit and kind of just – I love love the simple brushstroke idea where you're not really – you're not claiming to put the whole world into the thing, but you're getting it. It's like the Charlie Charlie Brown Christmas special model of literature, you know, where you're seeing a kind of a minimalist, maybe exaggerated, deformed even version of things and you're meant to – uh, read meaning out of that. I just, I'm just attracted to that for some reason.
0: There's also, I think, a kind of dark quality to a lot of the books yeah. that you have. You know, Edward Gorey, uh, Maurice Sendak. Um, it's a question I wonder about often. You know, I, that who is drawn more to the dark: the children reading the books or being read to, or the parents reading them? And I, I sometimes think that that parents really, or perhaps it's a certain kind of parent, really wants their children to be exposed to that kind of dark dark right. world through literature.
2: We're doing Dostoevsky tonight, Timmy. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a, a thought that maybe these dark tales are needed at certain times. I mean, if you read the, the, the Grimm Brothers, those are basically don't be stupid, be careful, listen to me, the world will kill you if you don't listen to me, which was probably more true at that time. I don't know. I, I sort of feel like the The thing that's needed culturally right now is some kind of a rigorous defense of tenderness, you know, of of the idea that strength is also uh, being willing to stop for somebody else and lift them up or, you know, it seems like somehow we become a bit, in my view, a little bit materialistic and analytical, almost without us noticing it. And sort of the old virtues of charity and you know tolerance and patience are kind of uh, like yeah 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 we'll do that if we can maintain the shareholder value you know so I think uh, I'm I'm kind of newly drawn to stories like there's one in here called uh, the hundred dresses oh yeah such a the yeah, Eleanor Husties. Story. yeah and it's just I mean that's a masterpiece because a kid reading that there's not a line where it says try to be loving to the kids among you who are a little bit. You know less than you, but the whole story says it I think almost in the last line you it just pops in your head It's so such a story. and there's this story. great
5: theme also in the very persistent gappers of 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 just neighborliness you know that I think is really important now too that we live in these communities with each other and we have to share certain burdens no, and, that's right. and help each other out yeah. and and you know that's another theme i don't I don't think you see that much
2: yeah and you know sort of this idea this contemporary idea or maybe it's not contemporary but of circling the wagons you know that we can't Afford to go too far out of that circle, bit of wagons, or things might get dangerous. And I think you see this in the immigration debate, and even the sort of the this new stuff about terrorism is the idea that our our safety is paramount, and it's worth a whole lot of other you know a lot of other people's freedoms. And I think that's something that you know I guess those of us who who maybe were taught it take it for granted, but I you can sort of see. That a cultural value can just kind of subtly, subtly shift and be and be lost, you know. So I think a lot of the great kids' books have a kind of tenderness, tenderness at the heart of more you know, very very sort of lofty moral ambitions, actually. And then the trick, of course, is the bad kids' books are so overt about it that any kid with any sense would walk away and go rob a bank or something. <laughs> <like
0: that. laughs> All right. I have to ask you now about specific bad books, just because you've brought it up twice, the books that you hate to read to your, your children and the ones that are just
2: Bad. I honestly have him blocked. You blocked I have, them yeah, out. I blocked him out. You know what's funny though, as a as a writer and a creative writing instructor, is what makes a bad book because it's not usually it's just a slight turn of the dial. It's and I think it has something to do with the the writer being too aware of and too proud of his or her cleverness. You know, so instead, this, which goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, the respect for the reader isn't there because they are overestimating their own. And cl- cleverness, and then you get it about page two, and go, "All right, I see where this is going." And I think bad kids books tend to have um, rote repetitions of motifs that you now you see it coming for the fifteenth time. You know the. But well it's
0: it's it's like a very misguided way. There's a certain amount of repetition to teach children who are learning to read.
2: Right.
0: Um but then when sometimes that's incorporated in books that aren't even necessarily about teaching <laughs> right, right, the child right, to read. Right. Um maybe a little bit too much teaching the parent to read. So this is coming out now again for the fifteenth uh its fifteenth anniversary. Why now and did you change anything and
2: no, I mean, the book is essentially the book. It's a, a beautiful new uh, appearance. And, you know, honestly, we, Lane and I, uh, I think we both felt like it was a, just an incredibly happy accident that we got together. We were so pleased with the results, you know. And then when it came out, it kind of didn't do, I mean, we did this thing where, um, at that time, we somebody had mentioned cross marketing, which meant we put it in the kids section and the adult section. And then just before it came out, we found out that that actually wasn't a thing, you know. So, <laughs> it got, so Lane, you know, it he's sounded a, good. It, it sounded great. It sounded very <laughs> '90s. But um, he Lane had, you know, at that time, it had millions of readers, and I had nine or ten, if you include my my uncle. Unfortunately, ended up over, because it's small, it ended up over in the adult section. So I think it kind oh, of wow. missed its moment well, a little bit, yeah. yeah. And just you know, for over the years, you know, I've read from it, and he's read from it and we just felt like somehow it feels like a book that hasn't quite gotten its chance so it's kind of a labor of love and then uh, Andy Ward who is my editor at Random House I think his kids were fans and so uh, you know one day I said you know could we possibly give that another shot because I think it actually had gone out of print so we brought it back and beautiful new cover and
0: giving it another shot then the title again is The Very Persistent Gappers of Fripp by George Saunders illustrated by Lane Smith thank you so much oh thank
2: you thank you
3: This is John Williams, an editor at The Times, and I'm here with Greg Coles, who has the last bestseller update of 2015. Hey, Greg. Hey, John. Uh, or it's the 1st of 2016, depending how you look at it. Oh, uh, fair enough. This is the bestseller list that will appear in the issue of January 3rd, 2016, but it covers sales for December 13th through 19th. And it's up online now for people to see. It is. So um, if no news is good news, there's a lot of good news on the <laughs> list this week because uh, there's Literally nothing. Uh, nothing new on the hardcover fiction list, nothing new on the hardcover nonfiction list, nothing new on the children's middle grade hardcover list, or the young adult hardcover list, <laughs> or the picture books list, or the series list. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, the only new title anywhere, in fact, is on the combined fiction list. Uh, it is... James Rollins' new novel, it's his latest Sigma Force thriller, The Bone Labyrinth, is new at number nine on the combined fiction list. And it, it's hovering just off of the hardcover list at number 17. Might get there in a week or two. Yeah, exactly. Depending right. on how many people buy it for the holidays. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a real holiday-themed book. <laughs> no. Uh, well, it's got Adam and Eve in it, so there's a little bit of religion. Um, this is, you know, this does James Rollins' uh typical kind of mashup of science and conspiracy theory and religion and myth. thats kind of uh, Michael Crichton meets Dan Brown.
5: Well, it sounds like definitely a formula for a bestseller.
3: James Rollins is is a regular on this list with this kind of thing. And um, I mean, it, it's all kind of preposterous, but also good fun. And you can tell he's just having a good time with it. That's great. So we will see you in the new year. Uh, you will. Sure. Well, in the meantime, happy holidays. And same to you, John. Thanks, Thanks. Greg. Bye-bye.
0: Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.